Amen. Now, if you haven't cheated already and looked at the sermon notes, you don't, the topic I'm about to, to start on, some of you are going to look at your spouse and say, of all the weekends we could have went to the lake, why didn't we pick this weekend? All right. And if you're a first time guest, if you're new here to the church, when we get into this topic, you're most likely going to turn over to whoever you came to church with today and go of all the Sundays to try out connection point. It would have to be this Sunday, right? Here's what I want to ask you to do. Don't check me out because you may just hear me preach on this subject today differently than what you're used to. In fact, in fact, in fact, in this topic, I can guarantee you up front, there'll be no guilt. There'll be no shame casting. In fact, this is going to be a grace-saturated sermon. Because if you get a hold of what I'm going to talk about today and you understand that it is saturated in the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, I pray you'll come out of this with a different perspective on this topic. This is probably the most hated topic people have when they come to a new church or come to church because it's been so badly preached in so many, so many times in the past. And today, again, we're going we're gonna to preach it from a perspective of grace. And I want you to see that today. In our church, we've been preaching through a series we call Our Code, and we've been looking at 10 biblical principles that we believe you find in the New Testament in the lives of Christians, and therefore, if they're in the lives of Christians, they were in, in the church. And these same biblical principles, I believe, should be in my life and your life, and you can go back on our website and catch up on the previous nine if you've missed those. But uh, this is our code, and, and today we're finishing up this series. And, and the topic we're going to talk about today, I think, will revolutionize the way you see this topic if you, if you really get into what the Bible is saying. So today we're going to look at a biblical perspective on this topic. Now, to give you some background, uh, we're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 in your New Testament. So get your Bibles and turn there. Get your message notes. It's there. 2 Corinthians 8. Now, I want you to have some backstory here. The year is about AD 56. The great apostle Paul has already made, uh, uh, planted many churches, and he's going back through his journeys, and he is stopping in different cities, and he's telling these Christians about the, the distress that's happening to the Jewish Christians down in Jerusalem. Down in Jerusalem, the Christians, these Jews who've converted to Christ are under a tremendous persecution. They're very poverty stricken. They're hungry. They're in need. And so the apostle Paul starts going back through the churches that he's already planted and he's encouraging them to show compassion back to the church in Jerusalem. When he writes this letter of 2 Corinthians, he's actually writing to a church in what we would call today Southern Greece. In fact, when you're reading the Bible, you may get caught up sometimes with these terms of places that you don't understand where in the world they are. When you read in the New Testament about Paul going to Macedonia, and you're like, where's the Macedonian? Or Paul going down to Achaia, well, where's Achaia? We're gonna straighten that out for you this morning. Look at this map of Greece. And in ancient times, the northern section of Greece would be called, what in the Bible, Macedonia. And up there, you've got churches that Paul founded in cities like Thessalonica. I mean, no, we got two books in the New Testament from that church there. Letters to the first and second Thessalonians up in Thessalonica. There's also Philippi up there, where we get the book of Philippians from. Most likely, Paul is in Philippi in AD 56, writing this letter that we call 2 Corinthians. It's not really the second letter. 
We don't have all of his letters he wrote to Corinth. But, but the second one we have in Scripture, and you notice down in the south, south Greece, this was what was called Achaia, and there's Corinth. So Paul's up in Macedonia, and he's writing this letter down to the churches in southern Greece, or Achaia. He's writing down to Corinth. And, and when you read this, you can feel the passion inside of Paul. He is absolutely astounded at what he's experienced with the churches in Macedonia. He's up in Philippi and he's been going through and he's saying, hey, we need to show compassion. Your brothers and sisters down there in Jerusalem are suffering and they're struggling. And he's writing to Corinth. Watch this, watch this. He's actually writing to Corinth for them to take up a love offering, show some generosity for the church in Jerusalem. But what you're going to find is he's astounded by the reaction of the Macedonians. I personally don't even believe he probably asked the church of Macedonia to give an offering for the people in Jerusalem, and here's why. The church in Macedonia is also struggling. They're also suffering. They're also very poverty-stricken because of the Romans. The Romans were punishing the Macedonians because that's where Alexander the Great was from. And so now the, the people up in Macedonia are struggling financially. They're having a hard time getting to work and make a living. And Paul's up there encouraging them. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And here's what you're going to hear Paul say about the church of Macedonia. Today we're going to look at four truths for Christian generosity that you find here in the church of Macedonia. Look with me at chapter 8 verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, we want you to know, brothers and sisters. Now remember, he's writing to Corinth. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God. Say those words with me. Ready to go. The grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. Stop for a moment. Pastor, what are you talking about grace of God given to the churches of Macedonia? I thought you just told me the Romans were persecuting the Macedonians because of Alexander the Great. He was. They were. How many believe in the sovereignty of God enough to know that God knows how to take care of you even if your present circumstances are less than ideal? Come on, somebody. How many believe God sees the end before, before the beginning? Do you believe this about God, the sovereignty of God? That God is everywhere at all times. He's all-knowing. And God, look, watch this, watch this. Knowing the, pro, the, the poverty and the struggle in Macedonia, yet their reaction, Paul is going to describe not as trouble because if I was writing this letter, I'd probably be saying, Hey brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you about the struggle your brothers are in up here in the North. But something happened that's so powerful that Paul doesn't even talk about their struggle. He talks about the grace of God. He saw come out of their struggle, by the way, by the way, by the way, how many know that God knows that some of your greatest moments for his glory may come out of your present hardships. You believe God can make good come out of your negative? Here's what's happening here in this church. I want you to know about the grace of God given to the churches of Macedonia during a severe trial. Watch this. Here it is. He's talking about the Romans. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you see it? They are struggling. They're under persecution from the Romans. But what, are, what, what stood out to Paul in the midst of their struggle? What stood out to Paul wasn't their affliction. It was the abundant joy they had in the middle of their struggle. 
And the fact that this church, with all of their troubles, decided with great joy they wanted to be a part of this generosity for the struggling Christians down in Jerusalem. Here's something I don't want you to miss. This church is made mainly, mostly, of Gentiles who've converted to Christianity. The church in Jerusalem mainly were Jews who had converted to Christianity. And here God's even breaking over the racial barriers. And a Gentile church is taking up an offering for a Jerusalem Jewish church. And they're, they're both in a midst of struggles. By the way, how many of you have been following Jesus enough to know there's a difference between being happy and being joyful in the Lord? Happiness is a fleeting emotion that comes and goes by present circumstances, but the joy of the Lord is your strength and the joy of the Lord has nothing to do with present circumstances. You can have joy in the Lord in the midst of your struggle. And this is why the Bible says that if you're in Christ, you can have a joy unspeakable and full of glory, a joy the world can't give you and a joy the world can't take away. There is a joy in Christ that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt there's a God in heaven. He hears you when you pray. And even if things don't work out the way you want them to down here, there's a home in heaven waiting for you. Somebody shout amen to that. That's where our joy comes from. And here's this church and they are under great persecution and yet they've got joy. And they choose to reach out in generosity. Here's the first thing I want you to write down that you're going to capture. The first truth here that we learn from the Macedonians is that generosity is an act or, or is a response rather to grace. Generosity is a response to grace. Look at how Paul defines this in verses three and four. He's, he writes these words. I can testify that according to their ability, and everyone read the next line with me, ready, go, and even beyond their ability, now circle the next four words, ready? Of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints. See, I, I don't know how it went down. I think it went down something like this. This is CWV version here. I believe they heard about the, the poverty of the saints in Jerusalem. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Hey, you guys are in a little bit better spot economically. Let's help out the struggling church down in Jerusalem. And here are these Christians in Macedonia who are already struggling on their own just to make ends meet. They're already under great persecution, but they've got so much joy in the Lord. And they're so overwhelmed with the grace of God that they have received that the grace of God opens your eyes to compassion for others, that they start begging, Paul, can we be a part of this? Now, by the way, I don't know, I don't know if you've ever been in church long enough to know this. I, I, church leaders, we never have people come up to us and say, I beg you to let me give an offering. <laughs> that just doesn't happen, okay? I just want you to know. But here's a church begging Paul for the opportunity to be generous. It's because they're responding to grace. And by the way, how many of you can define grace? Online campus, if you can, put it in the comment section. How many of you can define grace? What is grace? Grace is you receiving what you didn't earn and you don't deserve. And when you and I realize that we are recipients of the grace of God through Jesus Christ, watch this, Jesus died on the cross for your sin and mine, not his own. 
He arose from the grave to give eternal life to all who call upon his name. When you or I call upon the name of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. Somebody should have got Baptist and said amen right there. When we ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins, he forgives us of our sins. He redeems us for all time's sake. Our sins are forgiven. We're redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And listen, listen, listen. You and I become sons and daughters of the most high God. We can't earn that grace. We can't earn that love. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. It is a gift of grace that you have to receive. And when you receive that kind of grace, It helps you look at others with an idea of, I want to give to them, to someone else. I want to show grace to someone else who can't do anything back for me in return. Here's what I want you to capture. And this is what's going to be different than what some of you have heard before when it comes to a generosity sermon. There was no coercion from Paul for this church to give. Are you listening? Shout, I'm listening. There was no guilt or shaming for this church to give. Did you capture that? Watch this. Watch it. One more. One more. There was no false testimony of blessings coming your way if you give. There was no, you give a hundred and God will give you a hundred fold and you'll have a thousand in your mailbox by next Sunday. There was no TV evangelist saying, if you'll send me uh, the the amount of money you pay to your mortgage, God's going to pay off your mortgage. By the way, I just want to tell you, all of that teaching is heresy. And you need to cut it off. Next time you're tempted to send them a check, stop it. Go back and read 2 Corinthians, and here's what you'll find. There's no coercion, there's no guilt shaming, and there's no false promises to generosity in the Bible. These people weren't giving because they were shamed to or felt obligated to. They were being generous because they wanted to. Of their own accord. Say those words with me. Of their own accord. Here's what they understood. Number two, write this down. They understood that generosity was an act of partnership. Generosity is an act of partnership. Uh, We're part of a movement that says we can do more together than any of us can do alone. And that's what the whole idea of partnership is about. We can do more together than any one of us can do in our own personal worlds, our own personal realms. This church is struggling. This church up Macedonia, this is what I love about them. They're already struggling. It wasn't like anyone had to get burdened. It was all of them participating in their little. And how many believe that God can take your little and their little and their little and their little and God can do much with it in the end? You believe he can do that? I guarantee you he can do that. Here's the idea of generosity. It is partnership. And by the way, how many of you can finish this slogan with me? Online campus, you can put this in the comments if you can do this. You ready? Here we go. All for one and yeah, one for all. Do you know where that comes from? It comes actually out of a novel written in 1844 by this guy, Alexandre Dumas. Pretty so. And uh, bless his, in the South, we'd say bless his heart. Um, Alexandra Dumas wrote a novel in 1844 that this was the slogan of his heroic characters in the book. 
Now, anybody remember who the heroic characters are in the book? Even if you never read the book, you know who they are. Well, who are they? They were the three musketeers, right? It's the three musketeers. And it was their slogan, all for one, one for all. In fact, that, that slogan has become so famous that Switzerland has now adopted that in Latin as their unofficial motto of the country. All for one and one for all. And listen, if there's any group on this planet that should be all for one and all, or one for all and all for one, it ought to be the church of Jesus Christ. That we know what partnership looks like, that we come together under grace and we help and support one another and we make an impact for the kingdom. So for a moment, I just want you to think about this. If you're a part of CPC, I want you to think about the incredible impact you and I have when we partner together in generosity. You know, every summer we do this little campaign we call Summer Serve Projects. And we started out in May and you were generous with time and you packed more than 30,000 meals for third world countries. Come on. In June, we asked you to be generous with uh, going out and buying some supplies for infants, diapers and wipes, and helping out uh, uh, families who are struggling with infants and, and economic struggles. And you came in here and supplied enough resources for hundreds of families with babies in the month of June. In July, we asked you to bring a couple extra groceries with you every week when you came. And now we've collected an, a mass amount of food that will go to our food pantry here in the local community that services underprivileged homes and people who are hungry every single week right here in our county. And all these were partnerships. No one had to give a lot. All of us gave some. And God took our little and he did much with it, amen? Think about our mad offering that we do here in our church. And if you're new to this church and you've not been here yet in March, every March we do one love offering, one big offering. We call it mad, make a difference offering. I promise you this, we're not the church that every other weekend somebody gets up and says, oh, well, thank you for giving your tithes and offerings. But today, brothers and sisters, we need to take up another love offering. We do it one time a year. And now that one big gift out of the year, we're able to do all of us a little and God does great things. In fact, this whole new road, these next two parking lots are paid out of MAD. Future building expansion on this property will be out of MAD. Future multi-site campuses comes out of MAD. And we also support over 400 orphans in Belarus. We support a Bible college in Davao City, the Philippines. We helped plant three churches this summer, all out of our giving in mad. God takes a little and does much with it when we're partnering together. Amen. In fact, you want to write down the date for next year's mad. Right there it is. March the 10th, 2024. Write it down and begin praying now how God wants you to partner with us. And every week we partner together with our tithes and offerings. And listen, when we talk about tithing, I know that's a big, uh, that, that's a big elephant in the room. There are so many Christian debates. Is tithing still for Christians today or did that go out with the law? And I'm not going to get into that debate today. I'll tell you what this means. Tithe means a tenth. And it is a beautiful benchmark that God's given us that if all of us were given a tenth, and then no one has to give 30 and no one has to give 40. It doesn't put a burden on anybody. It's all of us participating. And my 10th looks different than your 10th. But it gives us a beautiful benchmark. And by the way, just for the argument's sake, 
uh, tithing actually predates the law by a few hundred years. The first person you ever find tithing was not Moses, and it wasn't in the law of Moses. It was Abraham. And Abraham, when he tithed, here's the kicker, here's the kicker, here's the kicker. It wasn't out of obligation or fear of God's punishment. It was out of worship. Number three, here's what I want you to capture. When we're generous, generosity from a Christian's perspective comes from an act of worship. Look with me back at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. And Paul says this, not just as we had hoped. Instead, underline this now and read it out loud. Ready to go. They gave themselves where? First to the Lord and then where? To us by God's will. So we urge Titus that just as he had begun, he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now as you excel in everything, somebody shout excel. You remember that in this series code, we actually talked about excellence as one of our core values. Here, Paul talks about excellence. And he says, as you excel in faith, and you excel in speech, and you excel in knowledge, and in diligence, and in love. Watch this, watch this, watch this. Excel also in this matter. In what matter? In this giving of a generous gift to the people who are struggling down in Jerusalem. Two things I want you to capture out of this verse, out of these couple of verses here. First of all, notice it's an act of worship. Where did the people give themselves first before they took up the offering? To the Lord. I don't want you to miss this. Every week when we take up tithes and offerings in this church, we add it as an act of worship. It is an act of worship. And if you lose that perspective, it's just giving money. Listen, I'm going to say something that may shock some of you. Because there is no church in the world that says, Y'all don't have to give no money here, right? That's how you pay the bills, right? That's how you do missions and church plants. But I will say this, I will say this. If you're not giving from an act of worship and it's just simply out of obligation, you can stop and go back and get on your knees with God. And when God shows you that it's an act of worship, then bring it back. You say, Pastor, why would you say that? I'll say that because of this. God's gonna take care of the need. He always has, always will. I don't want anyone giving here because they feel obligated. I want you to give because it's an act of worship because you can't get over the grace of God you've received and God has blessed you and you want to give back. Watch this, an act of grace by your giving, something you give without expecting something in return. See, it's not even worship if you expect something in return. Well, I'm going to give this offering, but then I'm going to get the pastor's ear and tell him what I like and don't like around here. <laughs> People have tried that and they've learned something about me. It don't work. It's got to be an act of worship unto the Lord. But here's a beautiful thing. As the Macedonians gave themselves to the Lord, it caused them to want to give to Jerusalem. And then they didn't do it out of obligation. They did it out of a response of grace. You see how it all works together? It's an act of worship. I want it to be an act of worship for you. Number four, and this is where it all comes down to, generosity is a matter of the heart. Generosity has to become a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of the law. It's a matter of grace. 
It's a matter of worship. It's a matter of the heart. Look at verses 8 and 12. Paul says, I'm not saying this. And remember, he's writing to the Corinthians. I'm not saying this as a command. He's not saying, take up this offering for Jerusalem. It's not a command. There's no guilt. There's no coercion. He says, this is not a command. Rather, it's a means of diligence of others. and, and, And circle this line. Circle this line. Read it with me. I'm testing the genuineness of your love. Paul says, when it comes to generosity, the only thing I'm really concerned about is, is where's your heart at in it? That's what he's saying. It's got to become a matter of the heart. It's no guilt here. There's no shame. There's no coercions and there's no false promises. It's got to become a matter of the heart. And look at the promise of verse 12. Are you ready? Let's say this in out loud. Ready? Read it. Come on, online campus. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And this is what I love about this. This is what's so beautiful here is God is saying, listen, I just want to see where your heart's at when it comes to generosity. And if you're given for the right reason, and if you're given out of love and out of grace and out of a response to worship to God, then whatever you get, whatever the amount is, it's between you and God. It becomes acceptable to God. I'm so happy God doesn't judge my giving based to your giving. Aren't you? In this church, I want to tell you, there's, there's, there's rows out here where it's a $20, $20 is a huge sacrifice for someone to give whenever we're doing some kind of mad offering or whatever. Or you're at, and it, generosity doesn't have to be inside the church either. It's out in the community. It's a principle we live by. But $20 is a sacrifice for some. The person sitting beside them, 20 is not a sacrifice at all. 200 is a sacrifice for them. And then there's someone beside them that 200 is nothing to them. They can do that without even thinking about it. 2,000 is a sacrifice for them. And believe it or not, there's someone on the other side of them that 20,000 is a sacrifice. It takes that much. You know what God looks at? Out of that whole row, each one individually on their own. And he doesn't, I'm so thankful, God doesn't judge one's giving by the acts of someone else's. This is you and him alone. This is an act of worship and a response to grace. Amen? God takes notice when we do it for the right reason. Look at this verse, verse 13 through 15. It's not that there should be a relief for others and hardship for you. In other words, God's saying, I'm not trying to burden anybody. That's why it's a partnership. At this present time, your surplus is available for their need. Their abundance will meet your need. And in order that there may be equality. And as it's written, the person who had much did not have too much. And the person who had little didn't have too little. How many know that God knows how to work it all out where everyone is a part of something bigger than themselves. And no one's burdened by it if we follow his ways. That's what we have here. And when you understand this model of generosity, then our 10th core value makes sense. And here's the big takeaway. Write this down. Our 10th core value is simply this. Generosity matters, but it's really the attitude. Let's say the attitude out loud together. Ready, go. We joyfully give of ourselves. That's the attitude I want here in our church. I don't want, when we talk about generosity, it'd be that, oh, I hate I came on this Sunday. (laughs) I get it, but I don't want that. I want us to change the mood. I want it to be, look at what God's done for me. And because of what God has done for me, I want to do for others what they can never repay me for. I want it to be an act of worship as a response to grace. How about you? 
And by the way, by the way, by the way, right in the center of this chapter, Paul gives us a reminder of what generosity looks like. Look with me at verse nine. Let's read it all out together. Ready? Verse nine says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you may become rich. And so right here in the middle of this generosity message, Paul says, and just in case you need the reminder, the reminder of generosity is Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus did for us that we could never repay back. He, the divine son of God, set aside his divinity and took on human flesh and was born of a virgin. He lived 33 years as the God man, went to an old rugged cross and stretched out his arms and he died in the sinful place of you and I and everyone on the planet, everyone but himself. He arose from the grave on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father and today gives this invitation, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be forgiven, shall be saved. And you know what the beautiful exchange looks like? The divine Son of God who became poor like a man, we the poor human, fallen, sinful human beings, you know what happens to us when we call on Jesus? We become sons and daughters of the Most High God. And I don't know about you, but you can't put a price tag on that exchange. Can I get a witness from somebody here this morning? Thank God for grace. Now, I don't know what your next step is. It may be to go to yourcpc.church slash give and automate your giving, become an active part of giving. It may be to start preparing for MAD and praying about MAD for you. It may just be, God, open my eyes to see opportunities for generosity, not just at church, but on my job or in my community or in my neighborhood. Look for opportunities to be generous and do it as an act of worship without expecting anything in return. For some of you today, it is to lift up your hands and to remind yourself of the grace of God you've received so that your heart is warmed again by grace. Let the, let the dryness be washed away. Let, let the legalism wash away. Just find yourself in grace again. 